only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me All right, in our final segment, let's, let's talk in general terms, I think, about the media. There's an army of flax out there whose job it is to mold public opinion, whether it's uh, selling a product or a candidate. I had a chuckle a couple days back and listening to Capital Public Radio's Insight. For the first time in maybe, I don't know, five or six years, I managed to listen to an entire program. They started out in this first segment talking about Mayor Kevin Johnson and some of his email shenanigans. What a mess that turned out to be. Although, we at Radio Parallax feel we have to give credit where credit is due. And even though last year we named Nick Miller of the Sacramento News and Review our jackass of the year for his poor coverage, shall we say, of the McVillage development in Sacramento, we were nevertheless pleased to hear what he had to say about Mayor Johnson when he just informed the listening audience of Capitol Radio that he's lying. When the representative of the Sacramento Bee came on, they proceeded to just muddy the water about which emails they were talking about, and some were privileged, and we'd like to see those too, but we were happy for some of the other ones, and it got it just got to be very muddy. But even though there were three media people on there, the News and Review, Capital Public Radio, and the Bee, the good people at Insight felt it necessary to bring on the other side. So they brought on one of Johnson's lawyers who muddied the water further about, you know, which emails were not related to Sacramento business, blah, 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 leaving beside the whole question of what in the hell is the mayor doing using his private emails to conduct public business on? By the way, a Sacramento judge has stepped in to back up the idea that the city cannot go back and delete all of its texts and emails related to this smelly arena deal and more. But uh, the lawyer came on, led the listeners on a merry chase. And then the spokesperson for the mayor came on and explained to everybody that he was actually a great guy, our mayor, working wonders and doing nothing wrong. Frankly, reminding us of George Tirebiter of Firestein Theater fame, who's always right and never lies. It wound up being a pretty lame show, but sadly, that is par for the course. Especially sadly for this correspondent, as I used to be a contributor over there, Of course, maybe I should blame myself. When the show first started and they were trying to seek feedback on how to improve it, I steadfastly presented the idea that having one guest for the whole hour was frequently a bad idea. Now, someone like Michael Krasny can frequently pull that off, depending on the guest. But uh, I advocated for doing several segments on different topics. Unfortunately, certain powers that be took that, ran with it, and locked it into concrete. So now when you have a topic that should be given the whole hour, it still only gets one small segment. Wrong approach, guys. But this thing with the mayor is actually getting pretty interesting, and we're going to follow that uh, as it unfolds. We spent 13 years being critical of the national media here on this program. We're not going to change that today. When I read in the likes of Time and Newsweek, or in this case, I guess it was Time, a quote from Jeb Bush being presented as if it was just like a meaningful communique, said Jeb we don't need another president who merely holds the top spot among the pampered elites of Washington. Well, come to think of it, we have to agree with him on that one. But why isn't Jeb Bush the paragon of the pampered elites in Washington, really? 
Here's another quote I, I like. They should have just jumped all over Donald Rumsfeld for this one, but he just more or less was presented as, well, that's what he thinks now. Said, uh, said Donnie Boy recently, the idea that we could fashion a democracy in Iraq seemed to me unrealistic. Well, thanks. Now you tell us. Yeah, now Don Rumsfeld claims he had reservations about uh, George W. Bush's plans for invading Iraq, but, uh, well, I guess he just went along. Yeah, Jeb Bush comes out and says things like, it's nobody's turn. I, I, it's not, I'm just going to be not going to be the nominee because it's my turn. And nobody in the national media laughs, laughs in his face. I mean, the, the Bush team managed to get a very favorable piece published in uh, The Atlantic about Jeb's very private wife. And then The Week repeated it. I did read the whole article and didn't seem to mention anywhere about Columba Bush's efforts when she was the wife of the... Uh, Governor of Florida to sneak back numerous items purchased overseas and not pay duty on them. Then there's the glowing piece, which I think was also in Time, about Carly Fiorina. And I know, why am I reading Time? This is from the magazine that was on the plane when I was going to Costa Rica. But this is what a lot of Americans are getting. I do want to say that after reading it, I do question the sanity of Carly Fiorina. Of course, if you listen to her on the stump giving a speech... That's a conclusion I think you too will come to, dear listener. Of course, I hasten to add at this juncture that the opinion that Carly Fiorina may be bat guano crazy does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. The article did mention that she was fired from her CEO job in 2005 and decided to launch her 2010 California U.S. Senate campaign the day after a doctor told her she had breast cancer. Oh, and by the way, months later, her drug-addicted adult stepdaughter died alone in a New New Jersey apartment, but she kept on campaigning. She lost by a million votes, and evidently Fiorina's best friend and campaign manager uh, remarked at the time, well, what were we thinking? Fiorina loves to talk about her record at Hewlett-Packard, but critics note that the company grew on her watch because she oversaw the massive merger with Compaq, which also led to layoffs of 30,000 people and a stock price that nearly halved on her tenure. Of course, the way it's looking, Fox News is going to handle the Republican debate, and they're only going to offer 10 spots, the top 10 polling candidates. It looks as though Fiorina may not make the cut, and she may just quietly dispose of herself, which is frankly okay with us. Been a lot of changes over at the Sacramento Bee, a lot of them not so good. I don't like to turn to the second section and have obituaries hit me in the face on the third page. I also didn't care for Tom Johnson's piece. He's with the McClatchy foreign staff, and the article was titled, Nicaragua's Dream of Canal Gets Closer. God, again, talking about PR spin, this is going to be a disaster if they put a canal through Lake Nicaragua. A disaster. Of course, I do love the picture that was on... uh, the Insight Sections, page 3B. It showed Wang Jing, founder and owner of HKND Group, speaking during an interview in 2013. He's in Beijing. He's in front of a painting featuring the late Red Army commanders, including Chairman Mao, etc. Notes that the HKND holds the concession to build and operate the Nicaraguan Canal. We hope we can talk more about concessions and what that means in Central America when, uh, when Rich Cohn comes on the program. What we can see a concession is when the powers that be give a rich guy an outrageously good deal in exchange for massive kickbacks. It's win-win if you're the greedy developer or the corrupt politician. 
But uh, more often than not, it's kind of one big giant lose if you're the populace of the country. Speaking of corrupt politicians, we had to get a laugh over the San Jose Mercury's opinion piece on uh, State Senator Leland Yee just cutting a deal. Their headline pretty much says it all. At least Yee saved us the cost of a trial. We will not be denied all of the entertainment value of this corruption trial because apparently Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow still faces charges in the criminal conspiracy and evidently is going to go to trial. And frankly, we can't get enough when it comes to news regarding Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, who is, if you're keeping score, the head of the Chi Kung Ton organization. We got a long history of taking pot shots at reactionaries and conservatives in this program, but we do once in a while feel the need to go after some of the more loosely wrapped liberal ideas out there. Some people are getting a little upset at the city of San Francisco for its sanctuary status. In the wake of a Mexican seven-time felon who was deported to Mexico five times and decided last week just to randomly shoot somebody. Now, he'd apparently been in custody in Texas, and they shipped him back to San Francisco on some kind of drug charge, what might have been marijuana. Prosecutors decided not to press charges and to just turn him loose onto the streets, where he got a gun and shot somebody. You do have to exercise better judgment on some of these things. Let's go back to the B. In the wake of uh, Mayor Johnson serving up excuses on why he shouldn't have to release his personal correspondence, Foon Ree of the B elected to weigh in on the matter saying, you can argue whether the Sacramento Arena is a bad deal for the city, but is it illegal? Evidently, Mr. Ree listened to all the testimony and decided that things seemed on the up and up to him. We may try and reach out to him later and see if we can do some real estate deals with him. And we do want to give an attaboy, however, to the, uh, to the Mercury. Their graph on the startling decline of UC admission rates had a pretty good graph in it, and it's probably worth actually looking up and reading, dear listener. Though to their staff writers, in a disheartening trend that illustrates the growing inaccessibility to the state's premier public university system, the rate of homegrown students admitted to the University of California dropped to an unprecedented low this year. How low? How about 16% for UCLA? How about 19% for Berkeley? 32% for Davis? Now, it's true, UC makes more money when it charges students from out of state or out of the country, but... Is this what the University of California is for? Educating the rest of the world's students? If you've got a strong opinion about that, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And speaking of media, how about an article from the Family Practice News, in which they have a reprint from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, noting, drumroll, that strong evidence exists that physical activity is a major modifiable lifestyle factor for preventing dyslipidemia. What a concept. Lowering your bad cholesterol and triglycerides and improving your health through physical activity instead of taking a pill? Geez, someone ought to take a look at that. Fairly certain the study won't be funded by any drug company, however. All right, let's close on a happier note. I have to confess to having never been a fan of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Until, I hasten to add, she's joined up on the HBO program Veep. She seems to fit this show like a glove. The writing is excellent, and it is generally enormously entertaining. It just completed its fourth season and will be back next year. And from what I can gather, while it's on summer vacation, HBO is bringing out a program called The Brink, 
which is apparently based somewhat upon the classic film Dr. Strangelove. It is without a doubt one of our favorite cinematic efforts here at Radio Parallax, and it might be worth talking a bit about the history of the movie thanks to the Uncle John's ultimate bathroom reader. Noted the reader, Dr. Strangelove is considered one of the best satires of the Cold War era, if not one of the funniest movies ever made. Here are some little-known behind-the-scenes details. In the late 1950s, a 28-year-old film director named Stanley Kubrick began reading up on the U.S.-Soviet arms race. He subscribed to Aviation Week and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Over the next six years, he read more than 70 books on the subject. He became fascinated by what he called people's listless acquiescence in the possibility, in fact, increasing probability of nuclear war. One of the books he read was Red Alert, a novel about a paranoid U.S. military general who goes insane and launches an unprovoked nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. The book, by former Royal Air Force officer Peter George, was so intriguing that Kubrick bought the film rights and hired George to help him write a screenplay. The screenplay was supposed to be serious, but Kubrick's dark sense of humor kept intruding. Finally, he stopped fighting it and placed a phone call to satirist Terry Southern. Southern recalled Kubrick telling him on the phone that he thought of the story as a straightforward melodrama until he woke up and realized that nuclear war was too outrageous, too fantastic to be treated in any conventional manner. He said that he could only see it now as some kind of hideous joke. So, Terry Southern became a co-writer on the world's first black comedy about nuclear war. Now, Kubrick had read some previous work by Southern, The Magic Christian. Actor Peter Sellers liked it so much he bought 100 copies and sent it to his friends, including Kubrick. And speaking of Sellers, over at Columbia Pictures, the movie Lolita, which Kubrick had also directed in 1962, they felt that it succeeded because of the gimmick of Peter Sellers playing several roles. So before even Strange Love had a title, they agreed to give Kubrick the green light for it, as long as it would star Peter Sellers in at least four major roles. Kubrick made the promise, but it turned out to be hard to fulfill. Sellers did play three roles quite brilliantly, Dr. Strangelove himself, President Merkin Muffley, and group captain Lionel Mandrake. Unfortunately, he got injured while rehearsing for the scene of Major T.J. King Kong, at which point Stanley Kubrick decided they couldn't replace him with another actor. They had to get an authentic character from life, someone whose acting career was secondary, a real-life cowboy. Terry Southern suggested Dan Blocker, Hoss Cartwright of Bonanza. Kubrick sent a copy of the script to Blocker's agent, who replied, Thanks a lot, but the material is too pinko for Dan, or anyone else we know for that matter. It was then that Slim Pickens, former rodeo clown, got hired for the part. Which is rather ironic, because Slim Pickens was more conservative than Blocker, and even supported presidential candidate George Wallace. It's sort of sad and remarkable to note now that when the film premiered, it didn't get good reviews. This spooked him at Columbia Pictures, and they distanced themselves from the film. Wrote Terry Southern, even when Strangelove received the infrequent good review, the studio dismissed the critic as a pinko nutcase. At one point, Columbia's publicity department called the film a zany novelty flick, which does not reflect the views of the corporation in any way. Of course, it was later noted that when the Library of Congress listed Strangelove as one of the 50 greatest American films of all time, former Columbia execs were in prominent attendance. Now, you may want to note next time you see the film, and you should see it probably on a semi-regular basis, dear listener, you note in one of the scenes in the war room, there's a long table filled with cakes, pies, and other desserts. It's not there by accident. Kubrick originally intended the movie to end with a pie fight. He even filmed it. 
The set director said it was a brilliant sequence and not only one of the most extraordinary pie battles ever filmed. The characters were hanging from the chandeliers and throwing pies, which ended up covering maps of the general staff. The sequence ended with the president and the Soviet ambassadors sitting on what was left of the pies and building pie castles like children on a beach. But Kubrick had to toss the scene out. He forgot to tell the actors to play it straight. As the scene progressed, it was obvious they were having a great time, which didn't fit with the rest of the film. And there was no time or money to reshoot it. And all I can say in closing is, ever see a commie drink a glass of water? Vodka. That's what they drink, isn't it? And if that quote is lost on you, by all means, go watch it again. Our thanks to Emeritus Professor of Geology, Dr. Eldridge Moores. Geology is an interesting topic. We are very much looking forward to discussing more of it with Dr. Moores in weeks to come. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. With any luck, we'll get Rich Cohn on next week's program. And we might be able to hook up with an old pal of mine, Colleen, who's Wonderful lightning photograph has been retweeted by Good Morning America, and apparently the Weather Channel is sharing it on Instagram. She's calling it her 15 minutes of fame, and maybe she'll come talk to us about it. Hope so. I am Douglas Everett, and I'll talk to you next week.